You're listening to the Smart Arts Podcast, presented by Richard Watts. You can listen to Smart Arts every Thursday morning from 9am to 12pm here on Triple R. And good morning, Richard Watts with you here on Smart Arts, taking you through until midday today. On the show today, we've got lots to talk about, including an exhibition in Brunswick, the revitalisation, renaming and reopening of a long and much, a long existing and much loved artist space in the CBD. We're also going to find out about the Darwin Festival, which launched its 2015 program on Tuesday night. I figure it's a bit cold and wintry at the moment. Maybe you're thinking of a northern escape. Well, we'll find out about the Darwin Festival and what's in store so that you can think about heading that far north. On the Cabaret Festival front, we're going to find out about a couple of shows, including one performed by an 81-year-old who only started performing when she was 71. So if you've ever thought, oh, it's too late for me, it's not. Uh, we're also going to find out about a one-woman show that's on at La Mama called In Search of Owen Rowe. Cerise Howard will be joining us for our Fistful of Celluloid segment and uh, no Art Attack segment this week as both Ace and Ty have some other commitments, but they'll be back with us in a fortnight's time. All that and more on the show today. Hope you can stick around. Right now, though, we're going to hear the debut single from Beirut's forthcoming fourth studio album, No, No, No. Now, perhaps you've thought idly in a, in a moment here and there when you're sitting at work hating your job, I should get a new career. I should do something, but it's probably too late for me to start. Well, it's never too late to start, as my next guest, guest will uh, will tell us. <laughs> Lynn Ruth Miller is performing Not Dead Yet at the Melbourne Cabaret Festival. Lynn, you decided to become a comedian at, what, the age of 71? 71. And that was 10 years ago. That's right. This is my 10th year. This is the only thing that I've stuck to for 10 years. I, I was a professor, but I only lasted seven, and I was a, a primary teacher, and I only lasted six, and then I was a telephone madam, and I didn't do well at that at all. <laughs> that that was only a year where I was fixing up people for sex and didn't know it. But yeah, yeah, it was fun though. I thought I was fixing them up for love. Was a nice uh, surprise. Love, sex, they, one can lead to the other. <laughs> sometimes, but well, not always. That's what, that's what you tell your daughters. Not always, just sometimes. What was it that, at the age of seventy-one, made you decide that comedy and then following on from that cabaret was it's, something you wanted to do? Um, people, all comedians. Comedians and comedians that are listening are all going to scream no, no, but all of us are maladjusted. Uh, comedians were, were a little sick, uh, a little psychotic, and I was very much, uh, I always had the dichotomy of being a loner because I write and I paint. Uh, always, the things I do are, are activities that you do alone, uh, coming to terms with your creative juices, and loving people because obviously if you write and paint, you're writing and painting about it's a, it's a form of communication. And when I got up to tell, I took a, a course to write about it in, in a magazine I, 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 and a couple of newspapers. I took a course in, in comedy, and it was called the San Francisco Comedy College. But you have to understand when I, what, what I come from. I did not know there was a career or a profession called stand-up comedy. 
I had only heard comedy in sitcoms and late night shows. I had heard uh, Joan Rivers. I'm from the States, uh, and Phyllis Stiller, but I had uh, and Milton Berle, uh, but I had never heard it as a thing. I didn't know you went into bars and you stood there with a microphone and you told jokes. So when I saw the San Francisco Comedy College thing, I thought, you know, you can't. You can't teach someone to be funny, and I still believe you can't teach someone to be funny. But, but you, you can teach somebody who is naturally inclined to be funny how to be funnier. That's right, and you can teach them how to construct a joke. Absolutely you can, and that's what they taught me. And um, I, I got up for the final exam. I got up to do my my <laughs> my presentation, and because I was the only one uh, that had any experience in the class, the rest of them were 18-, 19-year-olds, I did beautifully, so all of a sudden I thought, oh, yeah, I'm a natural, which, of course, took 10 years. I'm a lot better now. But um, I was so excited because all these people were just falling all over me. And, I mean, and I've been alone. I haven't had a relationship since I was 25. Believe it or not, I sound like a nun, but a Jewish nun. But I, um, I, so, I mean, this was just amazing. All of a sudden, I'm popular. And I didn't have to cook them dinner, and I didn't have to change the sheets. All I did was just tell a little joke. And so I said, you know, I'm going to do this again. And stand-up comedy is is addictive. And the most important thing, I can't tell you strongly enough because comedians don't do this, is listen to your audience. When your relatives tell you you're funny, you're not. (laughs) When your best friend says you're funny, you're not. But when an audience full of strangers laughs at you, you got it. So how then do you make the jump from stand-up comedy to cabaret? Because there, there are obviously there are similarities between the art forms. There's the anecdotes and the storytelling you know, and the intimacy. But is this cabaret... This is interesting because I started out after I went to... I took a comedy show to the Edinburgh Festival because I had been coming to the Edinburgh Festival forever. And you got a highly recommended at the Edinburgh Fringe last oh, year yeah, for yeah, Not yeah. Dead Yet. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then uh, for the other one, I the one I did before, I won, I won Best Cabaret of... 2013. Was that for Granny's, Gone, Granny's Wild? Gone Wild? That was when I threw in continence pads at the audience. The British just love when you throw in continence pads. You do that in America and they all get sick to their stomach. But in Britain, they just love it. The more incontinence pads I can throw at them, the happier they are. They love you. They say, yes, we need them and we want them and we don't get them at, we don't get them at the Morrisons. We get them from you. And I always send them clean incontinence pads. In Britain, when I throw out the incontinence pads, I don't get any of them back. In America, (laughs) they all come back. I never have to buy new ones when I throw them. But anyway, so that one won. But the thing is that my cabaret started as comic jokes and a song. And it was called, the first one was called Aging is Amazing. And it was just jokes and a song. And it was about uh, a lady that goes in to, um, she's looking to get her flu shot. And, of course, it's the audience. And the first thing I say to them is, are you here for your shots, too? And and then I, because it's a long wait, because I was making fun of the NHS. I said, those nurses, they don't care about us. But while we're here, can I entertain you? And then I did that. But then, as I developed the the art of cabaret, I started thinking, you know, maybe I should tell them a little bit about what's real. And this cabaret and another one I do called 80, which of course is a lie now because I'm 81, is really what it's like to be aging. And um, people say, a lot of people say that it's hell, but it's not. It has to do with your choice. You can decide what kind of an old person you want to be. And I'll tell you, uh, growing old is a lot better than the alternative. 
Which dying. Is, yeah, that's yeah. Yeah, yeah. Or the uh, and well, and the other alternative, of course, is growing old, but growing old stagnantly. And I've seen that happen to people I know, where they just hit a certain age at about thirty, they suddenly stop listening to new music, they they just become stuck what in a, a rut. Loss. I know. But it's not just a loss for them; it's a loss for the community. It's a loss for people. We live in a society, and society is give and take. And what a crime to all of a sudden decide to read, live the same day over and over. What are you doing to your children? What are you teaching them? What are you giving to the, the society that's nurtured you if you just live the same day over and over? I don't live the same day. <laughs> each day is different, but each day is better if you let it. If you've just tuned in, we're chatting with Lynn Ruth Miller, who's performing her uh, cabaret show Not Dead Yet at the Melbourne Cabaret Festival uh, at the Butterfly Club. Uh, And uh, I'll give uh, the booking details in a moment. But, um, Lynn, you've moved from the USA to the UK, and now at 81 you're touring Australia. Um, You must have boundless energy. No, I do. I like what I'm doing. I love what I'm doing. I mean, every day I wake up and I think, oh, my God, I could be sitting in some home listening to somebody uh, talk about their dialysis and playing bingo and having happy hour at four in the afternoon. But I'm not. I'm out there. I'm doing things. I'm learning about the world that actually our generation created. And we were talking a little bit about that also, which I find uh, that we haven't created the best world ever. But uh, but. That's what we did. I mean, when I was young, uh, we were we were laying the groundwork for what you're dealing with now. I'm so sorry, but yeah, it's all your fault. Get out of the studio. Was, now. I know. I'm so ashamed. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> I didn't mean to. So, when people come along to see your cabaret show uh, at the Butterfly Club, which is on uh, from you did your first show last night? I did a show last yep, night, and you're uh, running through until this Sunday, the 28th of mm-hmm. June. Uh, and uh, what what are people going to expect? They're going to get stories, some self deprecating humour. They're going to get songs, no jokes. They're going to get. Uh, uh, I'm at uh, another. I, I, I don't remember the name of it. I'm at a hotel later tonight, uh, uh, doing jokes. I, I I do jokes. This is about how I got there. This is about what it is to go, because so many people say, well, I can't because I had a lousy mother, or I can't because I had no money, or I can't because I'm, I'm uncoordinated, I can't dance, I can't. You can do anything, but you've got to be willing to work for it. You can't expect it to go boom. Like my mother had an absolutely gorgeous voice, and she used to say to me, "If I hadn't had you, I'd be an opera singer." You have to study to be an opera singer. You have to work really hard. You can't just get up there, open your mouth, and start. Ah! The Aida doesn't happen that way. That's you have to be willing to put in the put in the work. But the journey has to be enjoyable. I I don't. I can't think of suffering. Anyhow, so that's the journey that I did when I, I from I start when I'm two years old drinking a glass of milk, and I get you right up to where I am right now, where I picked up a microphone and told a joke. If you want to get along and see Lynn Ruth Miller performing Not Dead Yet as part of the Melbourne Cabaret Festival, then you can head along to the Butterfly Club from tonight until Sunday. The Butterfly Club is in Carson Place off Little Collins Street in Melbourne. More info at thebutterflyclub.com or melbournecabaret.com. And, of course, you can find out more about Lynn herself at her own website, lynnruthmiller.net. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Richard, for having me. It was lovely.
You're tuned to Triple R. Uh, here in Melbourne, it's a slightly damp, or at least it was when I was catching the tram into the studio, a slightly damp and cold morning, which made me think that for many of us, planning a, a mid-winter or late-winter getaway is probably going to be on the agenda for a few people. Certainly looking at Facebook this morning, I saw a couple of friends already saying, I want to go somewhere warm. Where can I go? Well, I would suggest that uh, you head up to Darwin for the Darwin Festival, which launched its 2015 program on Tuesday night. It's artistic director and Andrew Ross joins us on the line now. Andrew, good morning. Good morning, Richard. So this is your very first Darwin Festival program. Does that mean that everything you've ever wanted to program in a festival has all ended up in the one lineup? Oh, look, I wouldn't say that. <laughs> I've enjoyed doing it and it's pretty good and quite a few of my favourites are in there. Um, but, uh, yeah, look, I'm pretty pleased with the program. Good to hear. Now, in terms of Darwin Festival as one of the, the major arts festivals for uh, each of the different capitals, um, what is it about Darwin's festival that makes it unique in comparison to, say, Brisbane Festival, Perth International Arts Festival, Melbourne Festival, etc.? Um, well, I think the first thing that makes it unique is that the huge number of Darwin people go. Um, I think we have the, the largest ticket sales per head of population of any festival in Australia by a long, long way. Um, and we have a very diverse uh, program. I mean, we have a lot of popular music this year. We've got a lot of uh, jazz, classical music, but uh, and quite a big children's program. But I guess two things define it. One is a lot of performance from the north and that means a lot of indigenous performance and the other thing is a lot of work that comes in from our immediate neighbourhood which in this year is particularly Indonesia. And one of the works in the program that caught my eye is an Indonesian dance work, so contemporary dance from Indonesia, that I understand was rehearsed underwater. Not entirely rehearsed underwater. Yeah, look, I saw this over a year ago in um, Jog Jakarta. It's an absolutely beautiful piece of work. Echo Suprianto is a leading uh, choreographer. He spent two years um, visiting this island in the North Halmahera, which means it's actually just a little bit north of the tip of northern Sulawesi and, and West Papua, a uh, very remote and underdeveloped island um, that depends on its coral reefs for its its uh, livelihood. And he worked with young men uh, there, and they spent a good deal of time underwater, um, meticulously observing the marine life um, and schools of fish and so on. And um, you see this expressed on stage in the most extraordinary way, where human bodies sort of almost become the, the rhythms of, of schools of shimmering fish. Sounds like a, a, a beautiful work to see, and uh, one of one of many that, as I was looking through the the program online, I was taking mental notes, going, "Yep, I'd like to see that. I'd like to see that. I'd like to see that." So, uh, but what else do you have in store? I know one of uh, one of Melbourne's much loved composers and musical magpies, Casey Bonetto, is doing a show. He is. Look, he's also spent a bit of time up here over the last few years. He was working with um, one of our much-loved um, singer-songwriters um, up here, Sh Shelley Morris, and they, they made regular visits to Berrimah Prison, um, and they ended up forming sort of relationships with a small number of, of prisoners and, and exploring their life stories and actually expressing them not just through a whole lot of filmed interviews but a series of songs. So it ended up as a, a, 
a musical documentary which screened on SBS and is, is now screening in various parts of the world. This is a live concert um, musical version of it. Um, so you get um, the film footage, you get actors uh, with verbatim dialogue or monologue rather, and and a whole lot of um, live songs in a band. So it, it's it's a musical with Ernie Dingo and. Uh, Jada Alberts and a terrific performer from New Zealand, Bronwyn Tudai. Um, yeah, that's the, that's the big show that we've actually produced for the festival. Now, one of the other shows that uh, has a very, very uh, Territorian flavour is the latest work by the dance company Tracks, who are somewhat unique uh, in Australia, uh, as far as I'm aware, in that so much of their practice is focused on site-specific work. Yeah, and this is about the sunset. I mean, people in Darwin love watching the sunsets, and they are fantastic. And the the evenings at this time of year are just terrific. Um, and uh, yeah, this is time meticulously to the sun going down, and it's at Miley Point, which is um, one of the. It's a park um, of pandanus and, and palms, and one of the best places to watch the sun go down over the ocean. Uh, in terms of programming a festival like this, is it a challenge to ensure that you get the balance right? Because I'm sure you don't necessarily want to artificially construct a program thinking there has to, there literally has to be something for everybody because that, then you end up with the, the classic thing that uh, a program that may feature something for everybody that, that ends up pleasing nobody because it has no sense of itself as opposed to just uh, a series of boxes that have been checked off. Tell us about the juggling act involved in putting a program like this together. I think that's absolutely right. I mean, you know, we've got at this time of year, including tourists, probably only about 150,000 people in town. Um, so you do have to cater for a lot of them or you're not going to have a successful festival. In a much bigger population, you can afford to ignore whole sections of your demographic and get away with it. Not so here. So in the music, for example, you know, there's a very good classical music program. We've got ACO2. We've got... Um, Piers Lane playing um, all of the Chopin Nocturnes, but we've also got uh, a big country music um, concert with Casey Chambers and Ruby Boots and Adam Brand, and then we've also got this venue called The Lighthouse, which you can imagine a sort of Spiegel tent without a roof and just a whole lot of festooning. The roof would just keep the heating up here. Um, we That has a big popular music program. We've got Abby May, Sophia, Holy Holy, Number One Dads, The Drones, um, and um, some local territory bands. We've got the Jupi Band, and we've got Frank Yammer, and also actually some, some Indonesian pop in there as well. Now, you mentioned uh, earlier that there's events for children and families as well. That's becoming an important part of programming in a festival. Um, Barking Gecko Theatre are represented in the Darwin Festival program this year and Dead Puppet Society, both companies which um, relatively uh, small companies and part of the, the small to medium sector, but producing great work. Small but absolutely outstanding. And the Ballad of Pod Life Padirk is, is wonderful and it's about... Um, uh, the, the trials and, and the bullying and the, and the terrors of the school playground, which I think is a great thing to, for children to lift the lid on. Um, and Dead Puppet Society, I, I spent 10 years in Brisbane and, and watched them grow. They just get better and better and better. And Argus is absolutely extraordinary. And they commissioned a, a score from Topology, who are actually artists in residence at the festival. So the kids, not only do they see the, the, the 
puppet theatre, but they actually see it with a live band playing the musical score. If you've just tuned in, we're chatting with the Artistic Director of Darwin Festival, Andrew Ross, who uh, launched the 2015 Darwin Festival program on Tuesday night. The festival itself running from the 6th to the 23rd of August. More details at darwinfestival.org.au. If you're planning a, uh, a winter getaway to escape the, the, the grim Melbourne weather, then Darwin Festival could be the place to go. Now, Andrew, we've talked a lot about the performing arts aspects of the program. Tell us a little bit about the visual arts program. Uh, look, uh, the festival opening weekend actually coincides with the uh, National Telstra in, uh, Indigenous Art Awards, with the uh, Darwin Art Fair and with the Salon de Refusé, which has become the three big Indigenous arts events at that time of year. And then there's a lot of very high-quality galleries in, in Darwin, particularly um, Indigenous galleries, and they've all got... Um, there's a terrific... Uh, exhibition called Revolution, which is from the Yakala print spaces, where they're really producing some extraordinary work. So, And we've got from Melbourne, indeed, Hannah Gadsby coming up to do some tours of one of those exhibitions, as well as performing her own show, Donkey. And there's also, of course, uh, an, another program which we haven't touched on yet. Uh, so to conclude, there's also uh, kind of writing and ideas being explored in the festival as well. Um, we're screening the documentary prison songs and there'll be a forum on indigenous uh, uh, crime and, and incarceration and its effect on the indigenous community, which is quite an, an issue um, in this part of the world as it is elsewhere in Australia. Um, we've got two writers, Tess Cunningham and Sophie Lee, talking about books they've um, written recently about Darwin. We've got architectural tours of, of Darwin, which are very interesting. A lot of the festival takes place outdoors. I mean, we do use conventional theatre venues, but we have this this festival park, which is where all these tours begin and, and end from, and it's like a big sort of, it's a bit like a sort of Asian food, outdoor food market with bars and, and restaurants and, and venues and so on. So that's sort of the hub of the festival, and then it, it, it spreads out through Darwin from there. For more information... Lots, lots, of, lots of nights under the stars. The idea of nights under the stars in, on balmy evenings uh, in August, I think, is probably making most Melbournians listening uh, lick, lick their lips in anticipation. So uh, lots, lots of that. People should start planning a trip. Uh, the Darwin Festival runs from the 6th to the 23rd of August. More information at darwinfestival.org.au. We've been speaking to the festival's artistic director, Andrew Ross. Andrew, thanks for joining us this morning. Thank you very much. Richard wants with you on Smart Arts, taking you through until midday today. It's time for us to talk visual art. Joining us on the line uh, is Eugenia Flynn, who's the assistant curator of an exhibition currently showing at Coonahan Gallery in Brunswick. The exhibition is called Both Sides of the Street and is an exploration of what it means to live in contemporary Australian society. Uh, and it's been curated by Black Dot Gallery's Kimber Thompson, who is a bit fluey today and can't join us, but very happy to have Eugenia on the line instead. Eugenia, thanks for joining us. Tell us a little bit more about the exhibition. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, the exhibition um, is running at Cunningham Gallery in Brunswick at the moment. And what Kimber and I have done is we've taken 10 
uh, Aboriginal um, First Peoples artists and paired them with artists from other First Nations around the world, so culturally and linguistically diverse artists. And we've had them engage in dialogue um, around what it means to live in contemporary Australian society, uh, what, what it means to make work on Aboriginal country, uh, you know, looking at things like sovereignty, all sorts of different aspects, spirituality, culture. They've had this dialogue and exchange and then they've produced works um, from that exchange um, and that's what we've, we've put into the exhibition. Now, in terms of the works they've created, I understand they've been working across a, quite a wide variety of, of disciplines and media. Yeah, definitely. Um, we were really presently surprised that there was quite a lot of multimedia works. Um, so there's videos, there's sound, um, there's installation, um, there's weaving, photography, uh, a whole range of different things. Yeah. And what's the response to the exhibition been like from visitors? Because one of the things that fascinates me about looking at any show is actually looking at the people looking at the show. So I can enjoy the work on one level, but I love watching other people's reactions to work, seeing what they're drawn to, seeing how they respond and hearing the questions they're asking as well. Yeah, well, it was great. We had an artist talk last week um, and uh, it was great to move through the space with many of the artists themselves and they spoke briefly about their work and to hear what viewers, um, the kinds of questions they would ask, you know, they, they wanted to know about the dialogue, they wanted to know about mediums, um, those kinds of things. I think people are really drawn to the um, slightly political aspect to the works themselves. So um, looking at, you know, um, language, for example. So we have two artists, uh, Nadia Faragab and Vicky Cousins, who've worked together and they've done um, a multimedia piece side by side where they look at language and, you know, language as... Um, something that keeps culture going as something that people are removed from when they move from other sides of the world to Australia, language that you know many Aboriginal people were kept from, from speaking, um, those kinds of things. And so in that way, it is about culture and celebration, but it's also slightly political in a way. It's a political act to say we're going to reclaim language and we're going to look at language um, and revival and maintenance of language. And I found that people were very drawn to the discussion about what dialogue the two artists had. They were very interested in that. I also found that people were really interested in, well, how did you then turn that into an art piece? What medium did you use? But also people were really interested in, in that political act that they're making within that. Now, the whole notion of dialogue uh, is obviously an important part uh, for any artistic collaboration, uh, and it's also an important, uh, a crucial aspect to the notion of uh, of people coming together and reconciling, which is of a, a particular importance when we're talking about works involving Indigenous artists. There's a panel discussion that will further those conversations um, uh, that's happening this Saturday, the 27th of June, 2.30pm, yeah. which you're facilitating, I understand. Yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm hosting that and I, I've organised um, the, the conversation for this weekend. And I, I guess, you know, dialogue was so important to the exhibition um, in terms of uh, quite often we have... Um, 
we have artists uh, that might be inspired by work from other cultures or, you know, quite often we have artists that might go, I, I want to make a profound statement about what it means to live in Australia and, and, and those kinds of things. But to actually have these artists engage in dialogue was really, really important to the exhibition. And then for us it's very important that that carries over into, well, what does that mean beyond the exhibition, beyond the act of making art? How do we make this um, live longer? How do we make it have longevity? And the dialogue is really important. We've got um, uh, four panel speakers, one of whom is an artist from the exhibition, Maria Faragab. She's a Somali artist. Um, as I said, she, she you know, looks at Somali identity, in particular in this exhibition, she looked at language. Um, we have Robbie Thorpe, who's an Aboriginal activist um, and who has been, uh, you know, been a leader in the Aboriginal community for many, many, many years. Um, and he talks very eloquently about um, issues to deal with sovereignty, um, to deal with, um, you know, the, the current state of Australia in regards to Indigenous affairs. And really the exhibition um, came from an action that Robbie took, um, I believe it was in 2010, uh, when he issued Aboriginal passports to to um, refugees who were coming by boat and, and then Prime Minister Kevin Rudd turned that boat around before it was able to reach Australia. He actually issued Aboriginal passports to, to all of the asylum seekers on that boat. Um, so that it's very important to have him involved in the conversation. We also have um, Ramesh Fernandez, who is the uh, CEO and founder of an organisation called RISE, Refugee Survivors and Ex-Detainees. And that's an organisation that's run by and for refugees, asylum seekers and ex-detainees. Again, a very important organisation um, because of uh, the way that they think about solidarity with Aboriginal people. Um, they're based in Melbourne. Uh, the way that they honour and privilege uh, the voices of their own community. It's, uh, it's not a service organisation where you have non-refugee people um, w working with, they work with themselves. I yeah. think that's really important. And we also have um, uh, Marissa Onus, uh, who is uh, one of the, the key members of Warriors of the Aboriginal Resistance. They're, they're the group that are organising all of the protests against the forced closures of Aboriginal communities at the moment. Um, very important to have her in the conversation as um, someone who is currently involved in, you know, in thinking about um, sovereignty today, especially for younger generations, what that means for us as Aboriginal people, um, how we can move forward together. So that, that dialogue is really, really important. And it sounds um, like it's oh, going to be... One, oh, sorry, yep. oh, just keep going. I was just—I was just going to add one more thing, um, in that we also are going to have a very special performance uh, at the panel. So, aside from having the really interesting discussion, mirroring the exhibition, we have uh, two poets that we've paired together. Um, so that's Luke Patterson and Leanne Lowe. Um, They've been engaging in a dialogue, they've been to the exhibition, they've looked at everything, they've been to the artist talks, and they'll be performing works that they've created out of that dialogue. 
So the uh, conversation from both sides of the street in co uh, connection with the exhibition uh, at Coonahan Gallery in Brunswick, the conversation is happening this Saturday, the 27th of June, at 2.30pm. Um, and mm. is uh, because of the interest in it, has been moved to a larger venue, RMIT Brunswick Interactive Lecture Theatre, um, which is uh, in Dawson Street, Brunswick, just around the corner, 250 metres, less than a five-minute walk from Coonahan. Coonahan Gallery in Brunswick. Coonahan Gallery is hosting the exhibition, uh, Other Sides of the Street, and uh, you can find out more information by going to the website at moreland.vic.gov.au forward slash Coonahan hyphen gallery. Should be, uh, I'm sure, a, a fantastic discussion uh, this Saturday, so uh, it goes extremely well. Uh, Eugenia Flynn, thank you so much for joining us here at Triple R. Thank you very much for having me. These Things Take Wine is the name of a show in this year's Melbourne Cabaret Festival, uh, performed by Natasha York, who joins us in the studio now. Natasha, hello. Hello, how are you? Do you have any wine on you? No, I don't, actually. I guess um, it is a bit early. It is, but I do have a wine mug with me uh, that says there is a large chance that this contains wine, so I've been carrying that around with me and getting my coffee in it, which just kind of makes me feel a bit better about the situation. So You bohemian cabaret artiste. <laughs> Now, you're a Queenslander, I believe. I am a Queenslander. Don't hold it against I me. Won't, I won't. I have some great friends from uh, Queensland and I'm rather envious of... Well, not envious, but um, I've been watching on in delight at the kind of the, the, the art scene in Brisbane as it grows and thrives. So. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, I mean, it's certainly grown a lot since I've left. Maybe that says something. No, but um, definitely in the cabaret scene and the sort of smaller productions, um, I've seen heaps of stuff pop up in Queensland, which has been incredible. So, yeah. yeah. So you trained at the Queensland Conservatorium of Music, um, yes. majoring in musical theatre. Yes. And this, I was talking to um, the artistic director of the Cabaret Festival and a couple of other Cabaret Festival folk, um, and they were saying that this is one of the reasons they think Cabaret has blossomed so significantly over recent years, because lots of people study musical theatre. It used to just be basically one course at Whopper. Now there are lots of courses in musical theatre around the country. You can't all end up singing lead roles in... No whatever stage musical production rolls through. So cabaret is a, a natural progression. Yeah, and I think um, the good thing about a lot of the new uh, sort of courses that are popping up is that they're not just choosing students that are cardboard cutouts of other stars that have already got careers, um, which is kind of a really great thing because it's giving opportunities to people who certainly have the talent and the chops, but actually, you know, you don't have to look like Lucy Durack to go to music theatre school anymore, or you don't have to be a dancer. You don't have to know all three really well because they're willing to teach you along the way which I think is really great um, and something that my course certainly I mean all 21 of us there was someone who was 31 and someone who was 18 and someone who was from New Zealand like we had a, such a plethora of people which was great. So after doing that course you moved to Melbourne in 2013. Yes. Um, so you are now uh, calling Melbourne home and performing cabaret. 
That's right. Yeah. I mean, I always loved Melbourne. Um, my dad's side of the family all lived down here. So um, sort of as I was trying to, uh, I didn't really know him growing up and I got to know him and I started spending lots of time in Melbourne and saw the thriving independent theatre scene down here and just went, yep, this is what I want to do. It's fantastic. Now, the thing about your show that caught my eye, apart from the title, These Things Take Wine, which is a great pun, um, <laughs> the, the fact that the blurb is, as the blurb says, that um, many of us can probably recall, albeit hazily, some tales of misadventure while under the influence, but few of us would be prepared to share them with the masses. So have you really written a cabaret show about getting drunk and doing dumb things and embarrassing things and falling what? over and blacking out and all of those <laughs> all of those things that all of us have done at some stage? Yeah, I mean, it definitely uh, doesn't just stay in that world, uh, but there's definitely a lot of lessons learned from those times in our life, um, and the cabaret tends to touch on that. It also talks on and the good times and the bad times that can be have had with wine. I mean, wine is such an integrated part of our social structure. I mean, you have it at weddings, you have it at church even. And so um, it just, it's a really interesting um, drink. It's not just like any other alcohol. It's actually a more socially accepted alcohol in lots of ways. And, and, a, and a ritual alcohol. Absolutely. Yeah. And um, so I think that was one of the reasons why I chose wine in particular, mostly also because it's great. Um, but uh, it, it was an interesting thing that especially like when I was at musical theatre school um, you know you're not supposed to drink too much you're not supposed to go out and have too much fun and there was a lot of guilt associated in those years whenever I did do those things at music theatre school and uh, once I came out of it and started doing cabaret especially it was like you can have a fun time and you know get along with your life as well so I think that was something that I wanted to draw on in the show as well that you're allowed to have a good time in life you can still succeed and do what you need to do as well. Now tell us about the songs that are in the show because Cabaret is very much, yes, it's about storytelling, it's about intimacy, but it's obviously also about songs. Oh. Are you writing and performing your own? Are you covering a mix of the two? Uh, it's mainly uh, reinterpretations of songs, mashups of songs, um, bits and pieces of music from one song and another song sung over the top. So um, it's particularly jazz heavy, this show. So there's uh, Nina Simone, uh, Amy Winehouse, um, Peggy Lee, those sorts of songs that you would enjoy with a nice glass of red anyway. Um, and then there's a few musical theatre sort of songs in there, obviously, Ladies Who Lunch, um, I'll drink to that, uh, you know, uh, and a few obscure sort of more vampy cabaret kind of musical theatre songs in there as well. So it's a very big mixture. Now, this isn't the first time you've performed These Things Take Wine. You've done it previously at the Butterfly Club, I yep. understand. How has it evolved since that, its original season? Yeah, it's actually been really interesting because we haven't touched it since um, December last year. We did it for Brisbane's Wonderland Festival as well. And um, just actually going back to it um, after six months of performing other things and looking at it and going, oh, no, we can do this in a much better way. <laughs> or this, so Why did we do this verse of the song when we could just cut straight to the chase? So it's been very good in that sense. I mean, the overall structure of the show hasn't changed dramatically, but as far as the message is concerned, I think we've really sort of drilled it down and added a few extra things to just really get the message a lot clearer. Which is a great opportunity to have because so often there's the focus on just make new work, just make new work, get it out there, keep keep succeeding and not that much time to reflect necessarily on, on your past triumphs. Absolutely. And, I mean, I'm really lucky 
with Daniel A as my um, musical director, he studies at AIM and he's learnt a lot more. He's done a whole jazz segment at university and so he's like, oh, I'm just going to put this chord in here and do that. A bit of jazz piano. Yeah, exactly. I'm like, is that even the same song as what we did the first time? But, yeah, it's been really rewarding, like, actually getting to, I guess, express our talents um, in a a different way within the show, Um, yeah, which has been really cool. Speaking of rewarding, Natasha, how uh, much fun is it to to have the freedom to, I guess, pick and choose what songs you want to do and reinterpret them and make them your own in this way that you can with a cabaret show? I think that was the main reason why I've jumped ship from music theatre, to be honest. Um, not completely jumped ship, but um, it, it's interesting because I have been doing rehearsals for um, an independent musical and, you know, I've been lucky enough that it was uh, a musical written by someone and so I'm like, oh, can we just change this line here and do this? And you don't get to do that at a musical that's been no. going for years and years and years. And so. particularly kind of like the, the franchised productions where kind of like they'll fly the director in who says, no, no, you have to hit that mark there and Absolutely. deliver the line this way. And yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, yeah, the tracks for musicals is insane. Like the, the way that they can actually figure out where every single person in a 40 person cast has to be at any particular time. is just incredible. So um, especially with my improvisation background and that sort of thing, it really gives you a chance to just sort of live in the moment and feel what the audience is giving you and go, oh, maybe I'm going too far with that today or yep, let's go there. Like they're, they're keen. Let's, let's go for it. So it's great. It's really fun. How much attention do you pay to the audience when you're performing as opposed to just losing yourself in the show and doing what you're doing? How, how attentive do you have to be to the audience's shifts and moods and, and responses? I think particularly with cabaret, I'm very aware of the audience, um, mostly because I do love a bit of audience participation. <laughs> but also, Remind me not to sit in the front row. <laughs> But um, I I also think um, that's, I guess, one of the defining things of cabaret. Um, I was talking to Neville and David about this, actually, and, you know, we were trying to figure out what the complete definition of cabaret is. And the thing that we kept going back to was the fact that you're in such an intimate setting and so you can either see or feel what the audience is doing. And so as you go along with things, I think it's just ingrained in that art form because you're talking about personal stories as if you're just kind of hanging out with someone at a bar having a glass of wine and I think that's what makes it more real, what makes people more engaged. As part of the Melbourne Cabaret Festival, Natasha York is presenting her show These Things Take Wine at the Alex Theatre, which is a a very recently converted theatre. It used to be the George Cinemas. It's now the Alex Theatre. Uh, Level 1, 135 Fitzroy Street, St Kilda. She's performing tonight at 8.15 and then Saturday at 8.15 as part of the Melbourne Cabaret Festival. You can find out more information at melbournecabaret.com and you can check out her own website, www.natashayork.com, where you you can see a uh, preview clip of the show and get a bit more of a sense of who Natasha is and what she's done. It's been great having you on the show. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. And uh, Chookers for the return season of These Things Take Wine. Thanks. talk visual art again now. 
for many, many years, there was a place called the Platform Art Spaces uh, underneath Flinders Street Station in the Campbell Arcade, uh, also known as the DeGrave Street Underpass. It's being renamed and essentially, I guess, rebooted. Uh, it's going to be known as the Dirty Dozen. Joining us to tell us a little bit more from the Creative Spaces Program at the City of Melbourne, the Program Manager for Creative Spaces, Eleni Arbus. Good morning. Good morning. And uh, artist uh, from a group called Skunk Control, uh, Nick Athanasu. How's it going? Good morning. How are you? Really well, thank you. Thank you both for joining me. So, Eleni, let's start with you. Why the the change of name for the exhibition cabinets in the uh, the Campbell Arcade? Look, naming's really tricky and um, we pretty much laboured over the name for a long time and Dirty Dozen became a working title initially because there were 12 cabinets that we were going to activate. Um, and it, it sort of had very various um, incarnations and we just found ourselves using it more and more and then one day we ran it past a group of artists and thought, you know, said to them, would you exhibit in a space called the Dirty Dozen? And they loved it and said, yeah, absolutely. So it kind of stuck. <laughs> <laughs> Nick, does the name resonate with you? Yeah, um, the work we do can be classed as being fairly dirty, dingy. Um, so, yeah, it sort of matches our sort of, you know, background in what we do because <laughs> we're fairly underground. <laughs> so, and uh, this is, of course, a literally underground art space, which any of hundreds of thousands of Melburnians would flood past every day when they get off the trains and at uh, Flinders Street Station and go through the, the DeGray Street um, underpass through Campbell Arcade, which has a beautiful aesthetic, just the, the shops that are in there, the, that, that tunnelled space and these glass cabinets kind of, that, are, that are in the walls that are exhibition spaces. What does it, is it from the 30s that it dates from, do you know, Eleni? Or? Look, I think the tiling's 50s, um, but the space itself would be older than that. Yeah, um, yeah you know, we, we sort of tried to not modify it at all. We kept the sort of broken fluoros and um, we repaired a bit of the sort of glass panels, but fundamentally it's been the same since the 50s. Yeah. So there, as well as that beautiful aesthetic, it's been, as I mentioned, um, uh, a visual art space for quite some time. The Platform Artists Group presented many exhibitions there over the years. One of my favourites involved artists actually turning those space, window spaces into studios, literally squeezing themselves into those yeah. those kind of windows to show how artists make work and how they work. And I remember feedback from one member of the public saying, well, I walked past this at seven in the morning and you were at work then and now I'm leaving and it's kind of... Uh, five in the afternoon you still I thought artists were lazy but no you people are working all day so um, in terms of the work that artists do Nick let's talk about skunk control Mm -hmm. because you're a collective of um, engineers and scientists making art that's right yeah yeah Yeah. tell us tell us more Um, we've all got an appreciation for art and we sort of find that art and science are pretty much similar in that you know they they prompt questions and discovery and that's what we sort of really sort of um, base our work around the idea that we can communicate concepts via different processes regularly sort of associated with science we want the audience to ask questions and that's what it comes down to i suppose at the end of the day so what kind of work are you going to be installing within the the 12 windows that make up the dirty dozen oh the installation went was already has already been sort of put in and um it opened up last night so it's um, the public have got access to it now but essentially we've um put a lot of um work that's sort of it's based around polarisation um, and how light can be sort of interacted with and interfered with and you get different effects based on that interference and interaction. So they're all, all up and ready to go, all 12 windows, and we hope they can engage the audience. Eleni, why is it important for the City of Melbourne to maintain the, uh, the window display cases in the DeGrow Street underpass as a visual art space? 
Oh, look, there's a couple of reasons. Um, I mean, traditionally, you know, for years, 20 years, Platform Art Space was there and there is a history of using those display cases as exhibition space. Uh, the public has become quite attached to them. Um, I think in this age of advertising bombardment, it's really important to be able to have some spaces dedicated to um, the promotion of local content, um, whether it is engineers or artists or fashion designers. I think Melbourne, it's a quintessentially Melbourne space and um, Melbournians have a strong sense of ownership of it and we didn't really want to um, change that at all. We wanted to actually expand the disciplines and profile the creative capacity of people in this city, which is why we have now opened up the program to all creative practitioners which is how the engineers kind of came to be the, our first um, exhibitors yeah. in the space. So when you say that that's being opened up, so you're looking for proposals uh, to exhibit not just from traditional visual arts kind of collectives and models, but from architects, designers, um, anybody involved really in the creative industries? Correct. And the application process opens today and it will run till the 24th of um, July. So there's a month of applications. Um, we're offering the windows for free. Um, usually there, there used to be a sort of fee for them, but we're you know just making them available free of charge. Um, and yeah, it's going to be the first time we're doing it, so we're really kind of curious to see who it attracts. There's also a little glass capsule around the corner of the Dirty Dozen, and it's something we want to activate as well. And uh, last night we had a DJ working out of it for the opening, which worked really well. So we're thinking about how we can integrate music musicians into the space as well. So if you're interested in putting in an application to exhibit in the Dirty Dozen, uh, application forms available at www.creativespaces.net.au. Uh, and as you've just heard, applications close on the 24th of July. Prevaricate Frequencies is the current exhibit by Skunk Control. Um, I think, Nick, I should get us get you to tell us a little bit more about what people can expect when they kind of venture down into uh, Campbell Arcade. What will they see? A bank of colours, a huge amount of colour, basically. The colour that's not normally seen, but then if you pass by windows and you look at a certain direction within the windows and you'll see blasts of colour, and the colour constantly changes. So, um, yeah, it's actually quite a magical place. It's almost like what we try to create there is almost the... the behind the wardrobe, so um, under the bed sort of situation, okay, where there's this magical area where we hope people... It brings back fond memories from their childhood if they're in that adult category at the moment, but the idea is to make it a magical place, which I know, brings joy and makes people want to stop and look and then sort of say, how's this going on? So it prompts all these amazing things from people, we hope. That's one of the things that I love about the, the art space down there, the fact that it disrupts people's daily routines. Yeah. And it can, like, you flood off the train uh, in, uh, with your coffee in the morning, you're thinking about work, and maybe you see something that just stops you in your tracks for a moment or on the way home from where you're plod plodding home at the end of a weary day and suddenly you see an artwork that just lifts you out of your life for a moment. And this notion of... Yeah, people uh, with this particular work capturing, uh, seeing something out of the corner of your eye and literally having to stop and turn and yeah. and see what did, what did I just see is a really intriguing idea. Yeah, it's, it's also about bringing the outside world underground too, so therefore there's links to that subterranean world out to the other world. So it's there's a couple of things that are going on there, yeah. yeah it sounds like fun to play with. Mm. Um, what was it about Skunk Control's work that made you choose them as the, the very first exhibitors in the space alone? Um, look... It, it was that sense of um, integration of science and art. It was the first time I saw it work so successfully with a broad cross-section of people. I came across it at the Gertrude Street Projection Festival and I was 
as kind of entranced by the work itself as I was by the people watching it. And so when The Dirty Dozen came became available, I thought, you know, that sense of wonder and surprise and that kind of quite magical subterranean world, it's like a natural, it's, it's a natural world in a, a space you least expect to find it. And um, the, the polarisation of the light that Nick just described is really quite magical and extraordinary. It's, it, it is, it, it's difficult to explain on radio. Like, I really invite people to go down and experience it firsthand because it's quite unexpected and um, transporting. It takes you to another place. And, you know, childhood is um, a good place that you know, Nick has identified. It takes you somewhere else and it's one, yeah. Prevaricated, I'll try that again, prevaricated frequencies by skunk control is currently uh, being exhibited at the Dirty Dozen, which uh, is the the renamed uh, display cabinets, now artist spaces once again, in the Campbell Arcade, the Grave Street underpass in the CBD, underneath uh, Flinders Street and leading into Flinders Street Station. It's uh, The current exhibition is showing until the 5th of September. Uh, and as you heard, there are currently uh, the call for applications to exhibit in the Dirty Dozen. Uh, their uh, applications are open now uh, from today until the 24th of July. Application forms available at www.creativespaces.net.au. If you want more information, you can call 9659 9658. I highly recommend if you're an artist or, for that matter, an engineer, an architect, a designer, or anybody with a strong interest in creative work that you apply to exhibit in the space. And as we said, uh, Skunk Control, uh, a, who are not your usual artists group currently exhibiting there at the moment. Guys, thank you so much for joining us here at Triple R. Thank you. Thank you. Richard Watts with you here on Smart Arts. Just a reminder that if you are a Triple R subscriber uh, and you couldn't get through at 11am for our uh, subscriber phone-in for double passes to the screening of I Am Big Bird, the Carol Spinney story, which is happening 6.45pm Thursday the 2nd of July at Cinema Nova, we still have a couple of double passes left. So if you're a subscriber, give the station a call now, 93881027, if you'd like to get along to see this documentary about Carol Spinney, who plays Big Bird and also Oscar the Grouch on Sesame Street. Now, something else that uh, may intrigue you, apart from Sesame Street, genealogy. Are you interested in your family, where they come from, who they were, what they did, what shaped them and how that has eventually shaped you? I suspect you are. Certainly a lot of people are because shows like um, uh, Where Did They Come From, I think it's called, is the uh, on SBS, both the original uh, English version and there's an Australian version of that as well. Genealogy is a flourishing uh, kind of form of, of personal history. And it's something that performer Vanessa O'Neill is exploring in her show, In Search of Owen Rowe, which is currently showing at La Mama in Faraday Street, Carlton. Uh, Vanessa, welcome to Triple R. Thanks, Richard. Now, I just have to give my traditional disclaimer whenever we interview somebody about a La Mama production. I am on the, the Committee of Management at La Mama. I'm a volunteer there. I do not benefit financially from my involvement. Uh, so... Is interviewing somebody about a show at La Mama a conflict of interest? Possibly. But let's talk about your show. Um... Who was Owen Rowe and why did you want to write about him? Well, my great-grandfather is called, what was called, Owen Rowe O'Neill, but he also just happens to be named after a really famous Irishman um, who led an Irish rebellion in the 1640s in Ireland. So um, 
So actually the play deals with both of them. The, the original, Owen Rowe, the leader of the Irish Rebellion, as well as the great-grandfather who was... My great-grandfather who was buried in an unmarked grave um, with his 13-year-old daughter. Um, and I discovered that quite by accident, actually, after I'd had my own son, who who continues my name, who has the name O'Neill, and I kind of wanted to know more about my ancestor. I went looking for my great-grandfather and... and there's this huge cemetery in Perth, Karakata Cemetery, and I found lots and lots of other O'Neills, but for reasons that no-one could explain to me, my great-grandfather was buried in an unmarked grave. So that that's kind of the, the beginning of the show. True. Yeah. Uh, OK, it automatically uh, begs the question, why? But I, I'm guessing that's something we don't want to reveal because that's part of what the show is about. Yeah, it is, actually. It's, kind of, I mean, it's, the st- it's certainly the starting point of the show, and... And yes, we we do. I do uncover some interesting things about that particular great grandfather, and also the earlier um, Owen O'Neill as well. So, your your Irish heritage. How how much has that shaped your life? How important is that to you? Because, uh, to I guess just to half answer that, I'm consciously aware in the UK and uh, in the USA, for example, of all these Irish Americans who may have one Irish ancestor, kind of um, ten generations ago or something, but still celebrate their Irishness, um, perhaps only on one day of the year. Um, In Australia, certainly on St Patrick's Day, pubs are full of people who um, are celebrating their Irish heritage. But to what degree has... Does uh, your your Irish heritage shape your life and play a role in in your life today? Um, Ireland's kind of been huge for me uh, and I my, my and it is you know it is my distant ancestors are, are Irish not not immediate relatives but I've been to Ireland seven times and there's a, I mean Ireland is almost a character in the play there's a whole huge part of the play that deals with my my relationship with Ireland my relationship with Irish men my relationship with the landscape my relationship with the music I just have a thing for Ireland and it does seem so I've had you know, seven visits, and they've been quite substantial visits, so I've lived there at various periods of time. And it does seem as though when I go there, crazy magic things seem to happen, which I know sounds ridiculously romantic, but, yeah, I just have a... Th- it just, you know, kind of gets into my... You know, it gets under my skin, it gets into my soul, all that stuff. Look, I can totally relate. Irish accents do make me go a little bit weak at the knees, so... Uh, and I have I have had, in the past, a thing for Irish men, so... Uh, so, yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Yes. Um, I mean, the accent is fascinating. The culture of Ireland is fascinating as well. The fact that it has maintained such a strong... Uh, culture of its own, despite being invaded and subjugated by by England, so for for centuries, the fact that Irish identity has stayed so strong and so focused on itself, I find really fascinating that it that it exists. So again, that's something I guess that is threaded through uh, yeah. your one woman show as well. Yeah, it is, and and the whole thing about. I mean, the Owen Roe O'Neill is, you know, it's all about the North and the and the whole, you know, battle with, with the English and that seven-year rebellion that took place and Oliver Cromwell and, you know, which which I know sounds very dry, but we, you know, we found a very, a very dramatic way to te- to re replay some of those those aspects of history. So we kind of play out some quite significant parts in Ireland's history to do with, um, you know, English occupation and a fight for the struggle for an independent Ireland and that kind of stuff. And it's quite fun stuff to play with, um, as well as linking to more recent ancestors and also to the present. 
Yeah. Now, as I said, this is a, a, a solo show. Um, in in theory, yes, it's you performing uh, the, the show alone, but no show is made um, alone. You have a, a raft of uh, of collaborators such as uh, Glynis Angel has done the direction and dramaturgy, uh, the wonderful uh, lighting designed by Richard Vabray. I know it's wonderful already without having seen it because Richard's work is always mm. beautiful as a lighting it designer. Um, um, now, this is a work that you originally staged uh, in 2013, in a, a really short, what, two-day, three-day season as part of the La Mama Explorations program. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's it's one of those fantastic things that La Mama offer is that you've got this chance to just try out new work over a couple of nights. And that's what we did. So I initially had worked with Glynis, who's brilliant dramaturg and and director and we just we kind of just got to test out the piece because I suppose I was interested to know whether it resonated with an audience or not but it's all very well for me to be interested in my great-grandfather but you know is anyone else and because the story the play also tells some other personal stories about my own father's dementia um, and another you know a whole lot of other ancestors that I uncover and as I said my passion for Ireland when we put it in front of an audience we we did we found out that it did resonate and we also invited audience members to give us written feedback so i ended up with about 65 pages of written feedback which was really was was invaluable and kind of guided the next 18 months of work that we've done on the show um it's just that thing of you know once you put a play in front of an audience is actually discovering um you know where it resonates where we lost them all that kind of stuff that informed um yeah all the subsequent redevelopment and and the exciting thing about this new incarnation of the show is the fantastic team I mean Richard Vabre's beautiful lighting Darius Kedros has created the most incredible sound design um and and yeah and and Glynis is a brilliant director dramaturg so I have been very lucky to have a great team. Now, it, it sounds like uh, this is uh, your show, In Search of Owen Rose, in some ways the classic example of the, the, the individual story that, because it is so individual, somehow resonates at a broader level. Um, it's something that I find fascinating about theatre and about fiction and so on, that in some ways the more you personalise a piece, and I'm thinking, for example, of Tim Stitz's play Lloyd Beckman mm. Beekeeper, um, which is also about family and about mm. history and... and, uh, and those things that shape us Um, uh, a work that is so personal and so focused uh, on on an intimate individual experience resonates and perhaps has more connection with people than something that would be more general yeah I think I think that is that is a really interesting thing about the play and it was a really nice thing last night standing around the fire with we had Irish whiskey after the show last night standing around the fire in the courtyard at, at La Mama and lots of discussions took place various people were sharing their own stories around genealogy and also their experiences with dementia because a big part of the show is that as I was embarking on this search for my great-grandfather my own father was diagnosed with Alzheimer's so, it, it so also, as you discover history he loses his own. Yeah, he starts to lose his memory and he's the one who's told me these stories about Owen Rowe or told me stories about family. Um, so yeah, so it also deals with his story and so, and actually uh, what I have discovered is that the stories, that experiences of dementia um, do resonate with a lot of people um, as well as the stories to do with a, you know, search for family and ancestry. Um, so it provoked lots of lovely discussions after the show uh, last night. So yeah, it is. It is interesting that I that initially my concern was, well, but these is, these are just my stories. Who cares? But it does seem to have um, yeah resonance for audience on a 
on a deeper level. The production is called In Search of Owen Rowe and is on at La Mama, uh, not the courthouse, but La Mama Theatre, 205 Faraday Street in Carlton. Uh, it's on from now until the 5th of July, Wednesdays and Fridays at 6.30pm, Thursdays and Saturdays at 8.30pm, with a matinee at 4pm on Sundays. Uh, tickets are just 25 bucks or $15 concession, and you can book by going to www.lamama.com.au or by calling 9347-6142. That's In Search of Owen Rowe, which is written and performed by my guest, Vanessa O'Neill. Vanessa, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Richard. And um, uh, I'm really intrigued to see the show, just for a number of levels, my own interest in history, my own attraction to Ireland and Irish culture, um, and because uh, it's a a piece of independent theatre made at La Mama here in Melbourne. So uh, all good reasons to see it. Thank you. And uh, you've been kind enough to offer us a couple of double passes. Yeah. So if you are a Triple R subscriber uh, and would like to get along to see In Search of Owen Rowe, this Saturday night, the 27th of June at 8.30pm, we've got two double passes to give away to subscribers. 93881027 is the number to call. Again, Vanessa O'Neill, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Richard. been a while since we played the entire fistful of dollars opening theme for our fistful of celluloid segment but why not cerise howard has once again ridden in from the high plains dodging uh, clint eastwood and the like to uh, talk to us about the joys of cinema hello hello how are you yeah i'm fine how are you i'm good i'm good i haven't seen any films for a little while though i've been kind of otherwise engaged which includes lying in my sick bed over friday saturday and uh, not going out yeah, when in my sick bed, I quite like watching films. Well, I watch. I, I I was feeling miserable, so instead of watching films, I would crawl out of bed every couple of hours and watch half an hour of Doctor Who, and then go back to bed. And so. listening to the boys next door, perhaps over and over and over again. No, no, no. good. So uh, I do believe that you want to chat to us today about the Melbourne International Animation Festival. I'd certainly like to have a little bit of a chat about that, given that it's uh, into its 15th year. It's already underway and it runs until this Sunday. And there are a couple of elements to this year's program that I'm very excited about. Uh, Not least because I'm responsible for one of them, but I'll come to that in due course. Uh, There's a a wonderful guest of the festival this year, uh, a woman named Signa Baumana, an American a Latvian-American animator who is here for... There are two sessions of her films, a package of her shorts and her fantastic new feature film. She's getting only one screening here, Rocks in My Pockets, this Sunday at 4.30pm. I I think her work is extraordinary. I've seen quite a number of her shorts over the years, but this feature is something else again. Just a a little bit of background on her, and I'll actually quote her verbatim, her bio from her Vimeo page, because I think this is wonderful. The Signa was born in Latvia, educated in Moscow, lives in New York. She has had sex and made 15 animated shorts. Her new project is an animated feature, funny film about depression. And uh, that's pretty well spot on. She's never been one to shy away from uh, more adult themes in her animation. She's, in fact, an exemplar if ever you need to have that argument with some 
tweet out there again about whether animation is all child's play. Her films are a, a, a wonderful proof uh, negative. Uh, Rocks in My Pockets is actually a, a, her debut feature. It's quite autobiographical. And it, it, it's concerned with these timeless questions of how much of what we are uh, is nature and heredity and even predestination in particular here with respect to mental illness and how much is nurture, how much is our environment and how we're brought up. And it concerns a young artistic Latvian-American woman who's looking for clues to her struggles with depression in her family's past and with a special respect going back two generations to her grandmother, Anna, who uh, was once a, a promising young thing um, who wound up leading an extremely hard scrabble life, just popping out kid after kid after kid whilst her lands were occupied in turn by the Russians, the Germans, the Russians again. And the title of the film is drawn from a particular incident that... Uh, has always captured the protagonist's imagination and wonder about whether this is uh, in some parts where her own depression has come from, where she thinks back to her grandmother Anna, who was discovered in a pond in the Latvian forest, standing there, and her grand grandmother's, uh, uh, her granddaughter's surmise is that she'd wanted to drown herself and would have but for the absence of some rocks in her pockets to weigh her down. And this is the... Uh, you, you might get a sense of this, Richard. It's a very black comedy. Uh, it even opens with a, a sequence of uh, imagined attempts to top herself. And um, it, it's really quite quite uh, a beautiful, beautiful film and as profound uh, a meditation upon depression as ever I have seen on the big screen. And uh, this is where I think animation as a medium can really come into its own because it can give... It can give such kind of emotional insight by uh, shifting and blurring and changing and transforming. Yeah, it, it can give a visual representation to that which cannot really be represented by live action filmmaking it, because, it, it, yes, as you say, things can morph and mutate and, and expressionist um, a representation can come to the fore and make clear that which is going on inside people's minds. So it's just a really a terrific film. It concerns... It has a very feminist uh, perspective it's all focusing on the female members of her family and it's full of beautiful handcrafted 3d paper mache sculptures and, and really gorgeous hand-drawn animated characters populating this, these worlds which go back and forth in time and space and I, I just adored this film what's it called rocks in my pockets and i i hope after its screening on sunday 4 30 p.m at acme cinemas that someone might pick it up and give it some more screenings here because it's just superb uh, Balmana voices all of the characters herself in, in voiceover in her lovely accented Latvian-American way, uh, giving all the voices, uh, using, using her own voice to voice everybody sort of suggests too, uh, I think something that's part of the premise of this film, that we are all of us a, a product of all of, of whom came before us. So in, in a way her voice helps uh, the embodiment of these characters and suggests that, yes, perhaps there is a, a link between her predecessors struggles and her own uh the shorts package of her films is on this saturday at 8 p.m and i hugely recommend people get along to, to both of these sessions but uh she will be there in person for a q a after rocks in my pockets on sunday excellent so that's sunday 4 30 p.m uh at acme as part of the melbourne international animation festival yeah and still on the animation festival uh, i noticed that they're celebrating this year a centenary of australian animation and there have been a number of events surrounding that and this afternoon there's a a, a focus on advertising uh which is often used animation here and elsewhere and just uh i think it'd be a lovely nostalgic 
uh, trip down old memory lane. Um, if you think of all of the characters who've populated Australian advertising, uh, animated characters, whether it's Louis the Fly or Norm from the Life Beyond It ads, uh, and, and from much earlier too. Uh, so I think that's just this afternoon. Now, the other thing that's really grabbed me and that I have to admit to being in cahoots with is that there's a focus on Slovakian animation this year, and I have myself programmed a historical focus at 4.30pm this Saturday, a Windows on Slovakia historical, and it's an overview of animation from the years 1966 to 88, so pre-revolutionary, and just some really extraordinary animation. I, I think a lot of people out there would have some awareness of how much the uh, so-called Eastern Bloc contributed to the animated arts. I think many of us even here grew up watching often incomprehensible but extremely entertaining animations just that were used as filler on TV even here. Richard, you're smiling. I think you are... I am, yes. I, I kind of just little kind of three-minute, five-minute... Because if... if uh, given that the ABC doesn't have ads, shows would end five minutes early or ten minutes early and be like, right, pop that little weird animated kind of squiggle plasticine thing in there. Yeah, yeah and you'd watch the closing credits roll and look at these names and wonder how they could even possibly be pronounced. Where are the vowels? <laughs> so this is a, an opportunity to get acquainted with uh, the works of people like Viktor Kubal, the I suppose the godfather of Slovak animation, uh, as well as some wonderful women animators, Yaroslava Havetova, Dagmar Buchanova and others. There's also just a really terrific uh, brand new uh, Slovakian film focus there as well, which is on later that evening. And there are a couple of Slovak guests for, the, uh, for that session from Ovia Pictures, whose film Nina opened the international program uh, a night or two ago. So that's all very exciting. I love me some animation, Richard. and um, Me too. The Melbourne International Animation Festival is on now until the 28th of June and more info at www.miaf.net. Yeah. Uh, just a little gloss over some other things that are going on coming up in the month ahead while I'll be elsewhere and not able to do my segment. You're jaunting off to Europe again, aren't you? I, I have to confess I am. You're going to more festivals in the Czech Republic, aren't you? Oh, just one in the Czech Republic and one in Ukraine, in fact. and um, In Odessa? In Odessa, yes. Yes, where there will be a screening on the famed Odessa Steps, where I will truly be getting my film geek on. Uh, there'll be screening A Man with a Movie Camera, Zygur Vertov's uh, wonderful uh, city symphony, you could say, some of which was shot on the streets of Odessa, so I'll be trying to piece all that together. And um, But locally... Uh, well, there's all manner of things going on as ever. The thing that, well, while we're talking about Ukraine, excites me tremendously is that there's an encore season coming up at Acme of Ukrainian film The Tribe, running from July 14 to the 22nd from director Miroslav Slaboshpitsky. This is about the most extraordinary, harrowing experience I had in cinemas all last year. Uh, People might have some awareness of it. It's something of a sensation, not least for the fact that it is an entirely unsubtitled film where all of the cast and characters are hearing impaired. Uh, they inhabit a, a boarding school, a very dystopian boarding school, where organised crime and prostitution rings are the order of the day. Uh, there are various background dramas surrounding a couple of uh, students' attempts to get the hell out of there and get visas just to be anywhere else and the things that they will do in order to try to get out of there. Uh, 
harrowing in the extreme. I've heard, like, people have raved about this film to me but told me kind of just how deeply disturbing it is. It is. It, it's it's extremely challenging and you need to bring some energy to a viewing of it, but it's it just couldn't come more highly recommended for me, at least. It, it gives you a whole different way of viewing uh, cinema. It, your spectatorship is a, a completely different experience here because you cannot be lazy and rely upon the usual cues, not least sound cues. There, there is still sound in the film, occasionally actually extremely distressingly because whilst the cast and characters do not uh, speak verbally or vocally, uh, they, they still uh, emit noises um, and in some scenes of a, a, a sexual nature and indeed a surgical nature this is distressing in the extreme um, it, it's just uh, look you can look you can read into any amount of uh, the Ukrainian troubles into the narrative here as well it is as I said a, a very dystopian film but I think it's just a, an extraordinary experience uh, not least that this was a, a featured debut it just boggles my mind because uh, Slavoj Pitsky is in total command of the, his medium here and I, I think it's a film that is uh, unmissable if you are uh, not squeamish and, and wanting just to be prodded and provoked and, and uh, taken out of any number of comfort zones you have entered as a, a cinephile so this is the film The Tribe having a, a return season by popular demand at Acme uh, from the 14th of July to the 22nd of July. So put that one in your diaries for next month, which is almost upon us. It is almost upon us. And uh, rolling on at Acme, uh, there's a, a reprise season of Daft Punk's Electroma, a film that I adored a few years back, just a very peculiar film from that quite peculiar musical act concerning a couple of robots' quests to... Uh, it's actually hard to explain exactly what they're up to, but it's an existential road movie or desert movie, you might say. It's very, very peculiar, but really wonderful. The spirit of uh, Michelangelo Antonioni somehow lives on in a pair of drifting robots. Uh, an Ingbar Bergman season comes to a close. Uh, Fanny and Alexander and Sarah Bantz will have a second screenings to come. The Melbourne Cinematheque has another week of Kira Muratova. There's a Ukrainian connection there as well before embarking upon a season of films by Mikio Narusa, uh, an under-celebrated Japanese master filmmaker. Three weeks of Narusa's films, which will not include The Strength of a Moustache, one of the most wonderful titles I've ever heard, but that is a film that Guy Madden has uh, reimagined, a lost film in his film that will be screening at MIFF shortly, The Forbidden Room, which I cannot wait. I think I mentioned that a fortnight or so ago, but... Anything to do with Madden gets me a little excitable. Richard? Um, speaking of MIF, they've uh, announced their opening night film. That they have. Uh, and they've also announced a raft of, I think, 25 titles direct from the Cannes Film Festival. Mm. So uh, the full program announcement is not far away. Not uh, at all, no. on in a couple of weeks' time. Uh, but... Uh, you're about, as we've said, to jaunt off to Europe again, but you'll be back with us in time to start previewing some of the MIF titles in a month's time. Yeah, I will. And curiously, running up against MIF, which I'll probably talk about then too, is uh, the first Great Britain Retro Film Festival, as curated by David Stratton. All of these masterpieces of British cinema will be running at Cinema Nova with a lot of overlap with MIF, which I find a bit curious. What are some of the titles, just quickly? Well, there's a whole lot of Powell and Pressburger films, like The Tales of Hoffman. Peeping Tom, uh, more a PAL film only, uh, The Red Shoes and Black Narcissus, but also other films very close to my heart like The Third Man and Don't Look Now uh, and many others. It's actually almost overkill. I think maybe one or two of these a week or two at a time, small seasons, but especially running it up against MIF is, is it madness? 
Well, not necessarily, because we know that when festivals are on, people are more likely to go out and see stuff. So maybe people will look at what's on at MIFF that night and go, oh, I want to see that, but it's sold out, but I want to go and see a film. What's on elsewhere? And so it does in some ways make sense to have a... That's the half, the glass half full outlook, yeah. But meantime too, Nova running classics, The Dark Crystal... Is, uh, begins a season this very evening. And they've got a season coming up of If, yes, they I do. do believe as well. Lindsay Anderson's film, which I watched again just recently on DVD, the, the Criterion Edition, beautiful transfer on the DVD. Uh, and such a good film. It still holds up beautifully to this day. Um, so if you've not seen If before, it's a, a very unusual take on the British class system. Um, it is quite literally an attack on the British class system uh, from 1968. It predates the Paris riots by a couple of months so it's very much a film of its time yeah the student body rising up against the evil oppressing uh prefects and yeah. uh, and uh and teachers and the like so definitely worth seeing yeah, yeah that opens july 10 um yeah i'm really intrigued actually that the cinema novas and kinos the palace chain and all of these are more and more introducing classics and actually some repertory screening into their programming so palace kino for example has amadeus and the sting coming up in july as well just one-off screenings but this is an interesting development which i i suspect is informed by the success of uh the astor now open once again having some gala event this evening and uh the likes of the shadow electric and the rooftop cinema and these other little repertory cinemas there's i think um yeah the the bigger quasi art house cinemas the multiplexes are uh, getting hip to what's going down okay Hmm. well we will catch you series not in a fortnight's time then but in a month Mm -hmm. happy travels thank you thank you for joining us always a pleasure uh catch you in july much time for me to go. Just before I do, two quick things I wanted to mention. One, Circus Oz are back in town, their current show, but wait, there's more, on now in the uh, under the heated big top in Birurungma. I uh, have the pleasure of seeing it late last week. Really enjoyed it. One of uh, the, the first act in particular is, I think, the tightest, strongest uh, Circus Oz show I've seen for a couple of years. So uh, definitely a good one to take the kids along to, uh, or yourself if you feel like a big kid. Um, Also, uh, I have a double pass to give away to an exhibition called Colour Sensation, the works of Melinda Harper, um, which uh, includes admittance to the exhibition and an artist's talk with Melinda Harper herself at Heidi. Now, the galleries of Heidi Museum of Modern Art are currently awash with vibrant colour in this new exhibition by one of Australia's most significant contemporary abstract artists. Colour Sensation, the works of Melinda Harper, showcases the colour relationship Relationships and dazzling arrangements of geometric patterns the artist is known for in her first major Melbourne, uh, her first major museum exhibition. So on Sunday, the 28th of June, 2 pm, you can see the exhibition and hear artist Melinda Harper talking. 93881027, if you would like to get your hands on a double pass. I'm going to leave you with a track by Smokey, pre punk artist from the 70s, out and very queer, from uh, the collection how far will you go the s&m recordings 1973 to 1981 this is leather i'll catch you next week thank you for listening to the smart arts podcast you can listen to smart arts every thursday morning from 9 a.m to 12 p.m here on triple r this podcast was produced by nabila petrucci